you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Isaiah 6. And as you turn, let's have grateful hearts that we actually have our own copies of the Bible that we can open, that we can come here and study together, and not just study together on Sunday. We take them home, and we can read and study them every day. Listen, God help us to not take for granted that we have the Word of God. And so we're starting a new study this morning. And you can see there in your notes, it's the gospel according to Isaiah. And here's kind of the big idea that I want you to have for these next uh, next uh, nine weeks. Uh, more than 700 years before Jesus ever was born, God revealed the heart of the gospel to the prophet Isaiah. Circle that word heart there in your notes. We're going to be zeroing in in this series and looking at the heart of the gospel. Now, why is this study now and how will you benefit? I just want to briefly give you four things to look forward to in this series in the weeks to come. And the first is this. The gospel of Isaiah, uh, the gospel according to Isaiah, will draw you closer It will draw you closer to the one true God in all of his glory and grace. Uh, The book of Isaiah has been a mystery to me for years. I've read it often. And and when I was done, I was like, I have no clue. And that frustrated me. How many of you have ever like tried? Has it been hard to put the book of Isaiah together when you read it? And so I, I determined... Uh, I was going to read through the book of Isaiah for Advent, and some of you joined uh, me in doing that. We read through it in 25 uh, days, and then we looked at the four servant songs, and those are the heart of his book. And here's what I came away with. Listen, there's some books of the Bible that aren't going to be understood without diligent study and without the help of God revealing it to our hearts. We just did a series on the approach. And the bottom line is this. When a book is hard to understand, you've got to dig in, study, and ask for divine help. But I'll tell you this. I feel like I've got a stronger grip. Now, I, do I understand everything that's going on in that book? Not a, not a chance. Not yet. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. But I have a stronger grip and I have a bigger view of God, and I've grown closer to God through that, this book. And so we're, we're going at it again. We're going to look at it again, and I hope it will help you do that. I fell in love with this book, and I hope you will too. Secondly, the gospel according to Isaiah will give you a greater awareness of the gospel as revealed in the Old Testament. Isaiah is an amazing book. I won't take you through all the details. It's quoted more in the New Testament than any other book in the Old Testament, except for the book of Psalms. It's quoted 66 times in the New Testament. Psalms are quoted 79 times. And that's not fair because there's 150 of those, right? And also... Uh, it, it just covers. Isaiah literally predicts the life of Christ from the cradle to the cross to his crown. And it's just saturated. In fact, the word gospel really gained its New Testament meaning from the book of Isaiah. I think I have references there. Isaiah 49. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion. 
bearer of good news. Gospel means good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. That's what the gospel proclaims. Here is your God. Isaiah 52, 7. We're familiar with this. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Think about that. Behold your God. Your God reigns. This is the gospel. It's good news. And on it goes. The bottom line is this. Isaiah is an Old Testament book, but it's a gospel-saturated book. And I hope to show you that and see that so that you can know the gospel better and apply it daily to your own life, but also share it with other people. Number three, the gospel according to Isaiah will lead you into the heart of the gospel as revealed in Isaiah 53. Now, the bulk of what we're going to do in this series, we're going to spend five weeks on Isaiah 53. And we're just going to look. It's the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is this. You say, what is at the center of the gospel? Well, we'll see today. It's Christ's provision. It's what, what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. And you're like, what? Penal substitutionary atonement. Let me give you how I keep that word, that big idea in my mind. It is the heart of the gospel. Remove this and you cannot be saved. And the good news has become a false gospel and it's become bad news. What, what is penal substitutionary atonement? Again, we have five weeks to explain this, so don't freak out if you don't get it right now. But it's the sacrifice of the sinless Lamb of God as the sinner's substitute to satisfy God's wrath. That is the heart of the gospel. And that is the heart of Isaiah 53. And, oh man, Isaiah 53, excuse me. Isaiah 53 is the heart of Isaiah. So we're going to delve into this, right into it. And uh, I think it's going to help you. And I think... It will deepen your love for God and your love for people. And then number four, uh, the gospel according to Isaiah, this series will help you see that Easter is not only an opportunity for celebration, it's an opportunity for proclamation. Ultimately, this good news is just what it says it is. What do you do with good news, Michaela? What do you do when you get good news? Yes, you text Brian immediately. Yes, you say, no, someone else. Okay, 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 okay. Well, you share good news with somebody. Sorry, sorry, Brian. I didn't mean to to expose that to you. But yeah, you want to share good news. That's what you do. And so hopefully this is going to help you not only to prepare. I'm walking around with water and I haven't drank it. Oh, that feels so much better. I knew today was going to be that kind of day. All right, so let's take a look at this. Now, so here's what I want to do. We're going to take five weeks and look at Isaiah 53. But before we get there, 
I'm like, okay, we're looking at the heart of the gospel, but maybe we need an overview of the gospel essentials. And there's a great place to do that in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 6. And so we're going to look at the gospel revealed and applied this morning. Next week, I want to show you the prophetic view of history so that when we dive into Isaiah 53, you understand the vast perspective of the prophets, okay? And then we'll dive into that and leading up to Easter. And then after Easter, we'll look at Isaiah 55, 54, and 55 because those are the results of the gospel. And I think it's going to be a good time for us. And I hope that you will be here for every week so that you and be reading, be reading Isaiah, uh, at least Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, 54, 55 to prepare your heart for this. But today, I want us to look at the gospel revealed and applied in Isaiah 6. So let's look at Isaiah 6. You have your Bibles there. Look at it. Look at your Bible and follow along as we read verses at least 1 through 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw, now that's key, circle that, the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above, above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called out to another, perhaps like a, a one would say it, and then the other would say it, and the other would say it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Not your typical view of heaven, you know, half-naked babies floating around, peaceful, quiet, organ music in the background. Heaven is a loud, busy, boisterous place full of the praise of God's glory. Then I said, look at verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. I would put forth to you that you have just heard the gospel revealed and applied. And I want to help you to see that. So let's begin with this. The essentials of the gospel revealed. I have them written up here. And these are the essentials of the gospel. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And if we had more time, I'd just have you sit at the table and ask one another, what are the essentials of the gospel? So like right now, if I said, okay, you know, quit looking at that. Right now, if I said, 
What are the essentials of the gospel? What would you say? I venture to say it would be some of this, but often most of us would not say all of this. Okay? Here are the, go- here are the essentials. Okay? And this is how I, I mean, I, I, I first saw this in a book by J.I. Packer and tweaked it a little bit. And this is how I think about it. I sat in a doctoral class where uh, trained pastors who love the gospel, share the gospel, preach the gospel, had to answer the question, what are the essentials of the gospel? And they couldn't get it. We just don't think about this enough. Now, let me say up front, this doesn't mean that this is what you have to share every time when you share the gospel. And it doesn't mean you have to go in this order, right? So, like, if someone already understands God's position... In man's condition, you can start in on here. You, you see what I'm saying? So this, these are just the essentials. So let's, here they are. Let's say them together. Can you see them up there? Number one, God's position. Number two, man's condition. Number three, Christ's provision. Number four, our conversion. Number five, new creation. Now, sometime, you know, I, 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 you could say our decision and it is a decision, but it's a decision, it's a decision that converts and transforms our hearts. I li- so again, I'm not going to witness to someone and say, now, you know, let's talk about conversion. You know, I'm not, that, that's not the idea, but it's you getting in your mind that we can't reduce this to simply a, a decision that you flip the switch and then you go on about your life. Well, I'm getting ahead. Let's see what these are. So there they are. Those are the five essentials of the gospel. And granted, this new creation is an aspect, the result of the gospel, but it's a part of the the good news is you get to become a new creation. Look at your neighbor and say, that's good news. That's good news. And then look at your neighbor because you need to be a new creation, okay? Because you need to be a new creation. Okay, don't do that. It was just a thought. Okay, so let's look at it. Number one, the first thing we see is this. God's position. He is the holy king who rules with glory and grace. God's position. He is the holy king who rules with glory and grace. Now, notice in chapter 6, verse 1 is where we see this. In the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, Uzziah was the king of Judah at this time. And King Uzziah started well, but finished poorly. He was very successful. And so, you know, kind of think of a leader that was doing good things in your country, but wasn't the greatest man of character. You don't have to think too hard about that, I understand. So think about somebody like that. And so he starts out loving the Lord, and God prospers him. And here's what happens, and we do the same thing. God blesses us, and then what happens? We turn away from him, and we presume upon him. And so what was going on in Judah at this time, it was declining. And finally, this great king, who was slowly uh, departing from God and from and from. Uh, worshiping the true God, he finally died. And there's a good chance, there is a good chance that Isaiah himself was related to Uzziah. And so, you know, here's, 
Isaiah, he's used to being in the palace. He's used to success. He sees the country going down. And then King Uzziah dies. And he's looking at this empty throne. And so he goes into the temple to worship. What do you think Uzziah, what do you think Isaiah was thinking? He was probably discouraged. He's probably depressed. He's, he, he's thinking all is lost. And there, as he, as he thinks about the empty throne on a sinful Judah, God reveals an occupied throne in heaven. And that's the idea. Now, notice what he sees. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah sees God's position clearly revealed. Let me give you four aspects of that. First of all, God reveals that his position is sovereign and it must be revealed to us. Hey, Isaiah was looking down. And if God hadn't revealed his position to him, he would never have saw that. Listen, we need God to reveal himself to us. And guess what, folks? It's in this book. It's in this book. Listen, if you're not in this book on a regular basis, then you're losing sight of God's position in your life, okay? And here it is. It's sovereign. And notice, notice when it says the Lord sitting, is that small caps or all caps? In your Bibles. Lord, is it all caps? It's small caps, isn't it, Kirk? And the reason it's small caps is it's not the word Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means just Lord, uh, sovereign, uh, dictator. Okay, I mean, he, he, is, he is large and in charge. So the emphasis is on God's sovereignty as the creator who rules. Notice number two. It reveals that his position is not only sovereign, but exalted over all. It is high and lifted up. He isn't just a king. He is the king. And he is high and exalted. His throne, his rule. Now, let me just do a timeout, okay? We've got potential pan-emidemic. We always have economy. We have political. You have personal, family, marital, parental issues, health issues. Listen, he is exalted high above all those issues. He is large and in charge, and he is in control. That is God's position. And that's why I need to always get back in this book, because I lose sight of that. I lose sight of that. The gospel begins with God being exalted high and overall. And notice number three, his position is glorious. It is glorious, and his servants are to fill the earth with the praise of his glory. Listen, the train of his robe is filling the temple. What does that mean? Isaiah doesn't even see his face. He's high and exalted, but he is so high and exalted that all he can see is the hem of his garment. You know, it's like getting down here with Jim's pant leg, and I just see his pant leg. This is all I can see. And that that robe just fills the temple. And then look at verse 3. His glory fills all the earth. This is a sovereign king 
who is exalted. He is glorious and his glory is intended to fill all the earth. And yet what's going on on the earth? His own people are not glorifying him. His own people are not living for him. Listen, God's intention is to bring heaven to earth. God's intention is to fill the whole earth with his glory because his glory is worthy of that. Are you you with me? Now, the seraphim, how glorious is the king? The whole earth is full of his glory. But why is he this glorious? Why is he so sovereign? Why is he so exalted? And the seraphim are the ones who tell us. Seraphim in Hebrew means burning ones. And, 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 and basically, these are the created angels who are so close to the glory of God that they burn with his own glory. They burn with, they, they're like reflect. I mean, like when you get that close to God, you just reflect his glory. They're not as glorious as he is, but they reflect that glory. They burn with his glory. You know, you and I should be burning with his glory because we should know him that way. Okay. And what are they shouting? Holy, holy, holy. And I, I always knew this was emphasis. Look, that's not repetition. That's emphasis. What I learned this week that I didn't know, and this is why you keep studying, is that uh, I knew in Hebrew they repeat for emphasis, but they usually repeat twice. This is the only time that an adjective is used in the Old Testament three times. The only time. Because in other words... He, holiness means you're unique and set apart. Well, he's so unique that he's three times unique. So it's not like one plus one plus one. It's like perfection times perfection times perfection. Holiness to the max. He is unique, the one true God who deserves all the glory. And there is no one like him. He is second to none. Now, here's the good news. Number four, God reveals that his position is also gracious. It is not only sovereign, it is not only exalted, it is not only glorious, but it is gracious. And he is eager to be reconciled with the undeserving. You say, Chris, where do you see that? Well, listen, look at verse six. Lord is in most of your Bible, small caps. Maybe you even have a Bible that translates it, Sovereign God, okay? But then look at verse 3. When they shout holy, when the seraphim shout holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, that is in all caps. That means it's Yahweh, the Redeemer. Here's the good news. This exalted God rules in order to redeem sinners. Isn't that good news? So he's glorious, but he's also gracious. So I I showed you that from the use of the words of the names of God. But I don't miss what's not said there. How would Isaiah have seen this if God had not revealed it? You see, God did not bring him up into the throne room to shame him, but to grace him. 
He didn't reveal, he didn't have to reveal himself. He took the initiative to reveal himself and he did it to say, look at my position. It's sovereign. I am the king. It's glorious and exalted. I am like no other. I rule over all, but it's also gracious. I rule in order to redeem the undeserving. Listen, the gospel begins with God's, the first gospel essential is God's position. The holy king who rules over all with glory and grace. All right? Now, that leads to the second essential, though. Because when we see, until we see God for who he is, we won't see ourselves for who we are. That's why we've got to see him. Because other, here's the thing. Without seeing God for who he is, here's what we think about ourselves. I'm doing pretty good. And God ought to be glad I'm on his team. In fact, I don't even think I need to be on God's team. I can do it myself. And besides, the image I have of God is Santa Claus. Or a a nice grandpa that gives you things when you want them, but really doesn't have any claim on your life. You see, this is what happens when we don't have a clear revelation of God's position. But the second we see God's position, we then see man's condition. And we're like Isaiah. What does Isaiah say? The first words he speaks, whoa. And it isn't like, whoa, that's cool. It's, woe is you. No. It's woe is who? Me. You see, when you really grasp God's position as the holy king, you understand man's condition, but more than anything, you understand that you, and pardon my French, are in deep doo-doo. Okay? We're in big trouble. Sorry, Jeremy. I just had to throw it out. I had it printed, I crossed it out, but I had to do it. Hey, we're in deep trouble. That's what woe means. So let me give you four, listen, four characteristics of man's condition that is confessed. This is a confession. And let me just give these to you. And again, let me remind you, um, this isn't what you go through with your lost neighbor, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, but I'm giving you, I'm fleshing this out. Man's condition is hopeless and helpless. We are hopeless and helpless rebels at heart. That's the idea. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you four ideas. Like Isaiah, our condition is one of, number one, condemnation. Woe is a word of utter judgment. Now, isn't this interesting that Isaiah is being called to be a prophet to pronounce woe on others, but first he pronounces it on who? Yeah. Listen, we're not qualified to share God's judgment with others until we have embraced our own judgment from God. In fact, when we understand woe is me, Then we talk about woe is you with a heart that is tender, humble, and broken. Because it's ultimately woe is we. Are you with me? Man's condition. 
everyone's conditions, condemnation. Basically what he's saying, woe is me for I am ruined. He's look, look, I don't have a leg to stand on. I am hopeless. I am helpless. If this is who God is, I am in big trouble. Number two, like Isaiah, our condition is one of corruption. So here's what he says. Woe is me for I am ruined. Why are you ruined, Isaiah? Because I am a man of unclean lips. Look at verse 5. I am a man of unclean lips. What does unclean mean? Unworthy to enter into the very presence of God. Too corrupt to become before God and ask for anything. Notice, he's not asking. This is what's amazing. He's not asking anything. He's confessing. I'm condemned and I'm corrupt. And why is he not asking anything? Because he's not worthy to ask anything. He's not deserving of anything from this holy God when he is so unclean. You say, well, what is it about his lips? Did he have, you know, did he have a cussing problem? You know, uh, did did he, he, what's the the deal here? One commentator uh, tried to say that this was his pet sin, that whenever we come before God's holiness, we get convicted of that which is our pet sin. The only problem was, it wasn't just his sin. He says, I live among a people of what? Unclean lips. Something more is going on here. And here's what's going on, in in my opinion, comparing Scripture with Scripture. The lips reflect the heart for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and when you trace heart through the book of isaiah you see it's continually associated with the heart and what he's saying is look i may look okay i may look okay on the outside but my heart is corrupt and you can hear it in my words and you know what maybe we're here kind of that way we're like the judah the people of judah we're like Isaiah. Oh, we come to church, we clean up real good, and maybe we let a cuss word slip every once in a while, or maybe we do Christian cussing. I'm good at Christian cussing. Dang it, I am. I'm telling you. And, and maybe we're good enough to not let it come out of our lips, but we, we're cussing in our... I, the point is, we're corrupt. We're corrupt. Here's the third Isaiah's condition is like ours. It's contamination. Contamination. I live among a people of unclean lips. Listen, I don't think we understand how much our sin influences other people. And I don't think we understand how much other people's sin influences us. Look, American Christianity, instead of having an impact on the culture, the culture is totally contaminating the typical Christian in our culture. And we are thinking things, watching things, listening to things, doing things, that if we had a real clear God's position, we would say, oh, whoa, 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 woe is me. Third, our condition should be one of contrition. Contrition. For my eyes have seen the King... The Lord of armies. Look, this is what he's saying. Isaiah's not proud here. He's humble. He's not, he's not strong before God. He is broken before God. And basically what he's saying is this. Lord, if you're not a God who reigns to redeem, I am in trouble. 
That's man's condition. Third essential sets us up for Christ's provision. Christ's provision. Somebody, someone's going to have to come between us and this God or we're not going to survive, okay? And the one that comes is the sinless Lamb of God who is the sinner's substitute. The sinless Lamb of God who is the sinner's substitute. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. Notice again, he doesn't ask for this because he doesn't have a right to. This is God's grace. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, and remember when we say, when you see behold in your Bible, God is doing something to either judge or to save, or to save through judgment. And that's what's going on here. He touched my lips with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And I would say to you, he's saying it has touched your heart. And your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Now, if you're paying attention, and I hope you are, you're saying, Now, Chris, we're in the Old Testament. I don't see Christ in those verses. And I would say to you, you're exactly right. But what you see is an Old Testament symbol or picture of the one to come. It is a picture of the one to come. And now here's what's cool. Is Isaiah is going to be the one to reveal to us the one to come in Isaiah 53, but he's still in Isaiah 6. He hasn't seen this yet. And even when Isaiah reveals Christ to us in Isaiah 53, Isaiah doesn't know who he is, that he's Jesus, and he doesn't know when he's going to come 700 years later. That's why we're going to look at the prophetic view of history next week so we can better understand what Isaiah didn't understand at this time. But let me show you a temporary picture, and I just want to... I'm not going to go into this part heavily because that's what the next five weeks are going to be about. But notice there's a picture of purification. The burning coal pictures the fire of God that will eventually judge and cleanse our sin. There there needs to be a judgment of sin for there to be a forgiveness of sin. And then there's a satisfaction. This coal, this burning coal comes from the altar of God because there must be a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. So we see satisfaction. And then we see transformation. Behold. He touches the lips. He changes the heart. That's what we're going to get down here to the new creation. And then fourthly, there's reconciliation. The grace of God takes away our rebellion, cancels our debt, and does so only on the basis of what Christ will do. And here's the key to Christ. It takes a certain person to do a specific thing, and we'll talk more about this. But it's amazing. God enables Isaiah to reveal who this person must be. He must be a man, Isaiah 7, born of a virgin. He must be God, Isaiah 9, predicted the mighty God. He must be the conquering king who crushes the serpent, Isaiah 11. And he must be the suffering servant who pays for our sin. The servant songs in Isaiah 
53. And what must he do? He must take our sin and be humiliated in death so that he can rise and be exalted as the king who has conquered over all. We're going to see all of this in Isaiah 53. But now there's a word promised, a picture given to Isaiah of Christ's provision. The sinless lamb of God who must bear our sins away. And he and remember, John the Baptist began this by saying, Behold, began Jesus' ministry by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But does that mean everybody's saved? No. Number four, the fourth essential of the gospel is our conversion. We must respond with faith and repentance. We must respond with faith and repentance. You say, what's conversion? Conversion is our response to the good news. You have to respond. You have to receive the grace of God. And how do we do it? Conversion is a two-sided coin. We must respond with faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. And let me just show you quickly how Isaiah does this in this verse. Notice God's grace is shown in verses 6 and 7. God reaches out through the seraphim. The seraphim touches his mouth. The seraphim proclaims him cleansed. Then look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now what am I saying? What's happened? He has placed his faith in the promise of forgiveness and he has turned from his sins to look at his Lord. And instead of saying, woe is me, he's now saying, here am I. There's, there's a complete turnaround that's not spelled out, but you can see it. And there is faith in the spoken word. The word is given, his faith is in it, and he moves on. Isn't it beautiful? Listen. You haven't grasped the gospel if you've placed your faith in Christ, but you're still ridden with guilt about your past sin. You haven't embraced the gospel fully yet. You haven't understood it if you're still living in the past. And let me say this, you haven't embraced it if you're still living in your sin now. And you're not convicted over it. And you're not concerned about it. And so that brings us to the fifth essential, new creation. We receive a new heart to bear new fruit. I would put forth to you that in the rest of this chapter, verses 8 through 13, we see that the new creation changes. We see new creation changes that reveal the true fruit of repentance. So let me give you four that we see here. First of all, there's an eagerness to serve God and share the gospel. Who's going to go for us? I'm here. You know why? Why is Isaiah eager to, re, to share good news? Because he has received good news. And unlike Michaela, he wants to share it with everybody. <laughs> I just had to throw that in, Michaela. He wants to share it with everybody. You know why? You know, and you know, here's why. Because everybody's in the same condition. 
And everyone needs the same provision. And it has converted me. And so it has made me a new creation with an eagerness to serve God. Here am I. I will go and share. Number two, a brokenness over the sin of others and their rejection of the gospel. This is what's funny because this is us. Oh, I'll go. I'll go share the gospel. I'll, I'll go share your message, Lord. Okay, here's my message. Judgment. Uh, could, no, I... I Maybe Jim could go share that one. I, I, I want to share the good news. No, that is part of the good news. And so when he hears there's judgment, he doesn't say, no, I don't want to do it. What he says is in verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long is there going to be judgment? You see, he's got a broken heart for sin and for sinners because God has broken his heart. Are, are, are you seeing this? There's a brokenness. And then number three, there's a boldness to share both the bad news and the good news. In other words, guess what Isaiah did? He went and did what God told him to do. He went and shared the bad news of judgment, but he also shared... In fact, his whole book, he, for 39 chapters, he shares the bad news of the gospel. And then for the last half of the book, he shares the good news. And then number for a faithfulness that perseveres until God finally fulfills all his promises. Because basically, the rest of chapter 6 is one of judgment on Judah for their sins. And, and here's what he says. He says, Lord, how long is this going to go? And then look at verse 11. Until the cities are devastated without an inhabitant, until houses are without people, until the land is utterly desolate and then he says verse 13 yet there will be a tenth 90 percent devastation there will be 10 percent left and guess what that's going to be burned as well in judgment but notice the last part of verse 13 it will be burned whose stump remains when it's felled and the holy seed is its stump there will come a shoot out of the burned over ground. And we see in Isaiah 53, we see in Isaiah 11, that that shoot, that branch, is the coming Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So even with all this judgment, there's still that ray of hope of the coming king. Is that good stuff? There's your gospel revealed. The question is, has it been applied to your life like it was to Isaiah's life. You say, I thought Isaiah was saved. He was. We need a continual application of the gospel to our lives. So let me end with this. The essentials of the gospel must be applied, and there's three ways it needs to be applied. Number one, for the conversion of sinners. For the conversion of sinners. Number two, for the cleansing of the saved so that we continually be sanctified and serve God with a pure heart and applied for the communication of the gospel in word and deed. I like this Ray Ortland quote, Christianity throbs with holy joy for bad people. God made it that way. And it's because the gospel is good news for bad people. Listen, the gospel, I ask you today, 
Have you ever come to the point where you have placed your faith? You've seen God in his holiness and you've seen your condition as sinful and you understand that Christ must be your sin bearer. And you've come to the place where you've placed your faith in him so that you turn away from your old way of life to trust him to give you a new heart and new fruit in your life. Let the gospel revealed be applied this morning. Many of you have come to that point, but let me ask you this. Do you apply the gospel on a daily basis, understanding I need a renewed vision of God's position? Because you know what? I still sin even though I'm a new creation. And I still need the blood of Christ. If we confess our sins, he is unfaithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us continually from all unrighteousness. And while we don't need to get saved again and again, we do need to continually place our faith in him and his provision. And we need to see new areas of repentance. Because here's what happens. We get saved. And God begins to clean our life up, and then we plateau. And then we say, well, at least I'm saved. And I would put forth to you, you need to ask yourself, do I understand the essentials of the gospel? Because God doesn't allow his people to coast. You're a new creation. And you know what? I don't care how burned over your life is. I'll end with this. I don't care how burned over and ruined and corrupt your heart and life have been the holy seed can give you new life. Amen. Isn't that good news? That is good. Okay, that's the big picture. Let's pray. Father, I pray if there's any here, Lord, uh, that this is new to them, Lord, apply it to their hearts. If there's any here that need to be a new creation, they need that new start, and it begins in the heart. May it happen today. And Lord, for those of us who have already had that conversion, let's look, Lord, at the evidence of being a new creation. Do we have that eagerness to share the gospel? Do we have that brokenness over the lost people around us, Lord? Do we have that boldness to share both the bad news and the good news? And Lord, do we have the faithfulness to persevere until Christ comes again? So Lord, I pray, reveal the gospel to our hearts and apply it to our hearts that we could say like Isaiah, his name means the Lord is salvation. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, go forth with good news.